from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, 1 through 8. It's, uh, there are Bibles in the front of the pews, and if you don't have a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. Daniel 7, 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were, that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jeremiah. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here, the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here this morning. And uh, I have to admit that as I was studying this passage and preparing to preach it this week, I kept thinking to myself, that, oh, this is where J.K. Rowling got the idea of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them was, was right here in Daniel chapter 7. Um, and so uh, I know people say uh, that the Bible is sometimes hard to understand, and if you've not read the Bible much, uh, maybe um, you now understand why they say that. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7 and then start thinking, what in the world is, is going on here? It's comforting to me, though, when I read a passage like this, that later on in the text, Daniel himself uh, is confused and doesn't know what's happening. Um, and so, in light of that, if Daniel's confused this morning, um, we probably need some help as well. And so, before we actually dive into the sermon and start to look at this passage together and try to understand what it means and what God has to say to us uh, from His Word, I'd love to ask for His help. Um, he's the one who's inspired this. He's the one who's given us this Word this morning. And so, I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll we'll look more closely at what uh, Daniel's recorded for us in this passage this morning. So Father in heaven, you have inspired your holy and inerrant word for our good. Uh, not that we would come merely to have more information about you, but that we would come to know you. And in knowing you, enjoy you, and in enjoying you, that we might bring you glory. So give us now, Lord, we pray, eyes to see your word and the world as they truly are. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's happening in this passage, this crazy passage of beasts coming up out of the ocean? Well, this is, uh, this is a passage of, of classic apocalyptic literature, classic apocalyptic literature. Now, now, before you tune out, which I know a phrase like classic apocalyptic literature might be begging to you to do this morning, let, let me explain what I mean by classic apocalyptic literature. You see, apocalyptic stories, uh, stories of the end of the world, they're all around us. In fact, um, they've never been more popular, more pervasive than they are right now in the world. So you think about shows like The Walking Dead or Westworld or Game of Thrones or, or books like The Hunger Games, Divergent. All of these are kinds of stories that talk about the end. As a, as a culture, we've never been more interested in this genre of literature, this apocalyptic genre of the end of the world. But the thing is, is this kind of story, apocalyptic stories, these aren't new. They've been around for a long time, not just a decade or a couple of centuries. These stories have been around really as long as people have been telling stories for millennium. We have been obsessed with the end, with what's coming. And so it's true that when we turn to the section of Daniel and we read about these crazy beasts coming up out of the swirling sea, it seems bizarre. But it's not unprecedented. In fact, last weekend I was in New York at a conference on, on technology, and I got to spend some time with Alyssa Wilkinson, one of the authors of the books, uh, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. And, and in this book, Alyssa and her co-author write, she says, as long as we humans have been telling the story of our beginning, we've also been telling the story of our end. And during the conference, Alyssa pointed out a remarkable cultural shift that's taken place in this genre of apocalyptic literature. And she points out that as you study apocalypse, then these stories have been around for a long, long time, that up until the 20th century, in the past, those stories were always about God or the gods bringing apocalypse. They were the one bringing the destruction and the end. But now, post-20th century, after that turning point, it's almost always us who are bringing the destruction about. In the past, the apocalypse was actually written as a genre of hope. That God would come and destroy evil and set things right. But now, these stories are not stories of hope, but stories of our own destruction dystopic visions of the future that are left without hope. And so passages like this one in Daniel 7 are hard. They're difficult to understand. But the the reality is is that as people, we don't have a problem, whether we're Christians or atheists or or skeptics. It's not that we have a problem believing wherever you fall in that spectrum, have a a problem believing that the world is going to come into an end. We agree all that there is an end coming, whether it's global warming or something else. But what's harder and harder to believe in our cultural context is that God is the one who's going to bring it about. So nuclear war, uh, a global pandemic, that seems plausible. A zombie takeover, maybe an alien invasion, less plausible, but possible. 
But then when it comes to beasts coming out of a swirling ocean, that, that seems like a fairy tale. And, and this is because, whether we're Christians or not, we increasingly live in what philosopher Charles Taylor calls an imminent frame. We live in an imminent frame. What does he mean by that? He means that we live in a closed system, a, a world that's closed to the idea of the transcendent, the idea of the supernatural, the idea of God. But in the apocalyptic genre, we actually begin to discover a way to sort of peek out or break out of this imminent frame. So whether we're looking at a passage like Daniel or the book of Revelation or we're listening to a story, uh, watching a film like The Walking Dead, The Hunger Games, Divergent, all of these stories allow us in little ways to sort of break out of this imminent frame because they're all stories that are deeply spiritual. I've watched some of the, The Walking Dead and I always tell Rachel, it's not really about zombies. It's really about what does it mean to be human and, and what, are, what really matters most. That's what these kind of apocalyptic stories are about. They're about what life is really all about. Does it have meaning? Is there hope? Where do we find meaning and hope? Where is this story going? They allow us to see the bigger picture. And so that's what Daniel is doing in this passage as he records this incredible, crazy vision in Daniel 7. So as we walk through this passage, though, we have to remember that when we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, that what we're dealing with is a lot of pictures, images, impressions, emotions. These are not precise predictions with one-to-one correspondence necessarily with a particular moment in history or a particular nation or person, but rather they communicate the big movements of what God is doing. It's more like an impressionistic or abstract painting than a precise chart with dates. Because this is the thing that while I believe deeply that everything that Daniel says here is true, not everything is, is literal. These are pictures. They're meant to grab us emotionally. Give us a sense of what God is doing. Encouraging us today, but not necessarily giving precise answers about the future. So as we look at this text and we try to wrap up this series, we're going to see four tips. Four tips on how to survive the apocalypse while, while still thriving in Babylon. And we've been following Daniel's story now for the past seven weeks. We followed his story from the moment that he was taken from his home in Jerusalem, taken from everything that he knew as a young teenager, and then brought to Babylon, this foreign nation, this oppressor of God's people. And he's placed into the king of Babylon's elite training program. And in this time now, we're at the end of his life. He's outlasted an empire. He's gone from the Babylonians now to the Medo-Persian empire. He's served three different kings. He's sought the welfare of the city, a place that wasn't his home. And just like Daniel we are tasked with living faithfully and serving humbly in a place that isn't our home. 
And somehow this dream, this vision that Daniel has, this helps him in that. And I believe that it can help us also. If you know, if you've been with us this, through the story of Daniel, you know that he's been interpreting dreams and visions throughout his life. But now he has a dream of his own. And it terrifies him. This vision, it's an all-immersive event. I mean, it's, it's a dream. If you've had a really vivid dream, you, you know how immersive that can be. And, and this even seems like the language he's used is not just a, a, a dream, but also vision, that this is probably one of the most real, vivid experiences that Daniel has ever had. And it scares him. Which leads us to our first tip this morning, that it's worse than you think. So endure suffering. It's worse than you think, so endure suffering. It's clear throughout this vision that what is coming will be marked with suffering. Even the way that that Daniel begins telling us what he saw reminds us of how bad it will be at one point. Verse 2, he says, I saw in my vision by the night, behold, four winds of heaven were stirred up in the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. We've pointed this out a number of times, but when you come to the Bible and you read about the sea, that doesn't call to mind for the biblical audience, the readers who are first hearing this, of sort of, you know, a vacation by the beach. For them, the sea was a picture of chaos, of evil, of uncertainty, The sea was a frightening thing. And now, in this picture of the sea, it's being stirred up by great kind of hurricane-like winds and these giant beasts are coming out of it. It's, It's not great. And verse 21 tells us that the beast, the evil in the world, will actually prevail over us. Look at verse 21, if you have your Bible open. Daniel says, as I looked, this horn, that's one of the beasts, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Did you notice that? The beast made war and prevailed over the saints. This means that there will be times when it seems like God, his people, his purposes are losing. They're going to seem regularly in history where there will be times when it's going to seem like God is losing, like his people are losing, like his purposes are failing. The beast is prevailing over the saints. Shouldn't surprise us as God's people when we find ourselves feeling like outsiders, feeling like we don't belong, even feeling oppressed or persecuted. And if that's, if we feel that here this morning, It's certainly true for our brothers and sisters in places like China, Iran, northern Kenya. But it's important to remember in those moments who the real enemy is. Because this is another thing that becomes clear in the text, that our real enemies are not the people or the laws or the governments around us. That's not our real enemy. We often get a lot of of things wrong when we begin to see other people or the government or the laws or, or the opposing political party or whatever as the enemy. Though the real enemy is something much bigger, something much greater, something far worse. 
It's the cosmic forces of evil behind all of it. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesian church that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not other people. It's not other human beings. Listen to what he writes. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's what these beasts represent. They represent the cosmic forces of evil, Satan, all the spiritual forces that are aligned against God and his people and his purposes in the world. And this is part of what apocalyptic literature does, is it pulls back the curtain. It's what the word actually means. Apocalypse means a a revealing. It pulls back the curtain so that we can see the real battle that's swirling around us. The real enemy is not just those people on Facebook who keep posting those articles about the political party that you don't like. Those aren't your real enemy. They're not. And that's what Daniel helps us to see. He pulls back the curtain. There's a real spiritual battle that's happening. But here's the thing. For those of us who live in the imminent frame, this closed system, the idea of supernatural evil in the world it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around, even if we're Christians. I know I struggle with this because we don't, we just don't think about it. We live in this, this world that's not really open to the transcendent, not open to the spiritual, the supernatural. And yet those who have encountered this kind of evil face to face, they don't doubt its reality. Many of you know that we partner with the church in northern Kenya they're doing church planting in lots of really difficult contexts. We have uh, another campus in Leewood that partners with the church in Iran. Our Olathe campus specifically partners with churches in Rwanda. And if you know anything about Rwanda, you probably know about the genocide there. And it's just a little over 20 years ago that 800,000 people were murdered, slaughtered, by their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers in this ethnic genocide. And the commander of the UN peacekeeping force that was stationed there, um, if you know again anything about the story of Rwanda, the peacekeepers were just ordered to stay there and to observe, to not intervene. And so he watched the horror of this unfold. And, and afterwards, in a, people asked him if, if after having had this experience of witnessing such evil, if he could possibly believe in a God. And I find his answer it's, it's fascinating. This is what he said. He said, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know that the devil exists, and therefore I know there is a God. When I was in New York um, last weekend, on, it was actually Sunday morning, about a week ago, about exactly this time, I took the train down and I visited the 9-11 memorial for the first time. And for a lot of us, watching those images of the planes crash into those towers was a, was a moment of, of once again coming into contact and realizing there is real evil in the world, real suffering. We see it in in church bombings and school shootings. 
real evil. We can try to explain these things in the world by socioeconomic policy or brain chemistry or all of that, but the reality is, is it's far worse. It's far worse than that. So remember who the real enemy is and expect him to win lots of small battles, even though in the end he will still lose the war. Knowing this is key to being prepared to stand firm when we lose comfort and experience suffering for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The second tip that we see as we look at this passage in Daniel is that empires come and go, so don't get too comfortable. Empires come and go, so don't get too com- comfortable. This is probably the most obvious of the, of the four things that we see in this passage. Each of the four beasts represent an empire, and this passage is actually parallel to a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. So do you remember that one? There's this giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of, and it's got a head of gold and then silver, bronze. There's all this different metals and materials that make this up, and then what we call this divine bowling ball comes and knocks the thing over and takes over the whole earth. There's some weird dreams in Daniel. And the imagery of these beasts is is the same kind of picture, these different empires that, that kind of overcome one another. And the imagery of the beasts is associated with power and might, just as today, right, that countries choose to sort of represent themselves with these symbols of, of power, right? So the U.S., you know, we're, we have the eagle, the bald eagle is kind of the symbol of the, our country. Britain is often um, has, the, has the lion, Russia is often associated with the bear. Now, this shouldn't make us think that what's being talked about in this text are specific countries like the United States or Great Britain or Russia. Rather, it just reminds us that empires, nations, they've always represented themselves with these images of power and strength from the animal kingdom. In fact, these, these pictures of mixed animals, animal beasts would have been familiar to Daniel and his readers. Um, they're drawn from Babylonian mythology. In fact, if you go to the, the Louvre in Paris, you can see uh, this. You can see this, um, actually, a portion of the wall from King Darius's palace. And Daniel would have seen this. Archaeologists found this on the wall of Darius's palace, and, and God uses these images from Babylonian mythology um, to tell his story. So Daniel would have been familiar with the kind of animals that he sees in his dream from Babylonian mythology, but it is not just retelling the story of the Babylonians, but rather God telling a new and better story, one where every empire will eventually fall, but God's kingdom will last forever. The Babylonian empire fell to the Persians, the Persians to the Medes, the Medes to the Greeks, the Greeks to the Romans. What this means for us is that we must continue to strive to live as citizens of one nation, the one nation that lasts forever, the one kingdom that will never be defeated. So the question then for us is, as we begin to live, as we continue to live, as we try to live out our citizenship in that one true kingdom, the kingdom of God, does our life reflect that? How we spend our money, how we spend our time, where we look for hope and encouragement and comfort. 
do they align with where we're truly citizens of? Or are we indistinguishable from our neighbors? I think sometimes in our efforts not to be perceived as weird or strange, we actually forget to be different. Tim Keller puts it this way. I love the tension that he strikes and the balance. He says, Christians must be like their neighbors in the food they eat and the clothes they wear, their dialect, general appearances, work life, recreational and cultural activities, and civic engagement. They must participate fully in life with their neighbors. He says, in short, Christians in a particular community should at first glance look reassuringly similar to the other people in the neighborhood. That's the not being weird part. Is that true of us? Do we look reassuringly similar to the people in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces? But here's the other side of this. Keller says, and Christians must also be unlike their neighbors. In key ways, he says, the early Christians were startlingly different from their neighbors. It should not be any different for us today. Believers must be known for being scrupulously honest, transparent, and fair. Followers of Christ should be marked by generosity. They should be marked by sympathy and avoid being known as self-serving or even ruthless in business or personal dealings. They should be marked by an unusual willingness to forgive and seek reconciliation, not by a vengeful or spiteful spirit. We should be reassuringly similar and strikingly different from our neighbors. And this is exactly what Daniel did. This is exactly how he lived out his life in Babylon. He worked hard to serve the Babylonians. He worked in their government, fully invested in the flourishing of his temporary home, but he never forgot that that home was temporary. See, kingdoms, empires, nations, countries, they come and go. We don't know how long we have. So keep the big picture in mind. Don't get too comfortable here. This brings us to the third point here that comes out in Daniel's vision. And that is that judgment is on its way. So we have to get ready. This comes out uh, most clearly in this passage in verses 9 and 10. So if you have your Bible, take a look there. Daniel writes, As I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days. That's the picture of, of God took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him and thousands and a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Again, these are powerful apocalyptic images, a flaming wheeled throne with a stream of fire coming out in front of it. But this is not a tame image. Judgment is coming. And this is both good news and bad news. And we don't often think about judgment being good news, but, but it is. Because think about it for a minute. If you have been oppressed if you've been abused or robbed or beaten down in your life or your whole life, then judgment coming on those who are guilty, 
of that abuse and oppression? That's good news. And oftentimes, you will be denied justice in this life. People all the time get away with all kinds of awful things and are never held to account. But one day, one day God will judge. That's good news. That's hope. I mean, think about our partners in Rwanda, in Kenya, in Iran, in China, those who are, think about those who are enslaved, taken from their homes, brought to the United States to work plantations. Judgment for them. On their behalf, the wrongs being righted is good news. It's judgment on behalf of, for the oppressed. Notice verse 22 And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Judgment is given for the saints, not not against them, but for them. But this good news aspect of judgment can only come once we've dealt with the bad news of judgment. Because judgment is bad news. Because it would be much easier, of course, if there were just purely and simply innocent people in the world on behalf of whom could have judgment executed for them, not against them. But the problem is that none of us are just purely and simply innocent. All of us are also responsible for things that are worthy of judgment. And so judgment can be good news for us. So what do we do? How does the bad news of judgment become good news for us? For us who deserve it? The answer is to confess, to repent, to own the wrongs that we have committed and to ask forgiveness from the judge. Ask even forgiveness for the things that we haven't personally done wrong, but that we are associated with, that we've participated in structures and systems that we've been a part of. Because notice what Daniel does later on in chapter 9. In light of God's judgment, Daniel prays on behalf of his people for sins and wrongs that he didn't even commit. Things that he never even could have done. Because there's there's a collective guilt that we participate in as human beings simply by being human. Daniel prays in chapter 9, he says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And he continues later on in the passage, he says, we have not listened. To us, Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. You notice that he says, for our sins and for the iniquities of our our fathers, confessing my sin and the sin of the people. Have you ever 
done that, actually not just confess to God your own sins, your own wrongdoings, but actually lamented and, and pleaded for mercy for the sins of your family, of your country. And we, we, we really struggle with this as people. I struggle with this because we are so individualistic as a culture. There's some goodness to that. But we have a hard time seeing ourselves complicit in things that we don't directly do. But Daniel, he weeps, laments, grieves over the 500 years of rebellion and sin of the Israelite people. Are we willing to do that? To look back to when our country committed genocide against people who lived here before us. When our fathers enslaved people simply based on the color of their skin. For our country that has, since 1973, allowed the murder of more than 50 million unborn children. All of these things are worthy of judgment, and judgment is coming on them. So plead for God's forgiveness. Yes, for the things that you have done, for the, the things that you have screwed up in your own life, the ways that you've rebelled and turned against God and just made other people's lives miserable for your selfishness, for your, all of that. Yes, ask for forgiveness for that. And then pray, pray that God would have mercy on us as a country, as a people, because we are guilty. Judgment is coming. Are we ready for that? Now, if I were just to end the message here, we'd all be in trouble. Um, because you're probably feeling some combination right now of guilty or angry or afraid in varying degrees, and depending on who you are, maybe one of those is leading more strongly than another in this moment. And, and I would have failed at my most important task as a pastor, which is proclaiming good news. So this is not where we're going to end this morning. It's not where Daniel 7 ultimately ends. Because yes, when you get to the end of Daniel 7, he's still really freaked out about what he saw. He's confused, he's overwhelmed, but in the midst of this vision, he gets a glimpse of something else, something bigger, something greater that's coming, something that gives him hope, even in the midst of an absolutely chaotic and terrifying vision. And what he sees that gives him hope is what he says, he uses this language, he says, I saw someone like a son of man. Someone like a son of man. That language sounds familiar. It's because it's the same language that Jesus picks up and uses to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. It's one of the things that Jesus calls himself most often. Son of man. And listen to this description that Daniel uses 
in verse 11 to describe what the Son of Man looks like. He says, as I looked, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Evil's not going to triumph forever. Yes, he prevails over the saints for a time. We've talked about that. But in the end, it will be destroyed. Then he goes on and says, I saw in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Daniel's getting a glimpse of Jesus at the end of the age. And he comes to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That moment of the Ancient of Days coming. The Son of Man. I just, I, whenever I read those texts, I can't help but think of the end of, of the return of the King. And that kind of crowning ceremony. This kingdom that can't be shaken. That's the end of the story for us. Not, not one of dystopic destruction of a universe burning itself out but a grand apocalyptic vision of hope, of restoration. Next week, we're going to be stepping into the Advent season. And Advent, in a way, is really a story of apocalypse also. The story of the Son of Man coming the first time, not as judge, but as sacrifice. See, this is the good news of the gospel that comes out here, is that yes, God is going to come and judge. That is clear. But when God comes to judge, He comes and He brings that judgment upon Himself, the judgment that you and I deserve, so that we can experience forgiveness. When Jesus, when the Son of Man comes for the first time, He comes as a helpless, vulnerable baby. He grows into a man who is crucified on a cross for His enemies, taking all of the wrath of that throne. You saw this picture of the the wheels of fire, the flame coming out. Jesus takes that for you on the cross so that if and when you come to Him, you can experience not judgment but forgiveness. He died and rose again to destroy the enemy, to just absorb the judgment, the judgment that we deserved. And so in Advent, the season we're heading into, we remember the first coming of Christ and we also look ahead to His second coming, the second Advent, when He will come as judge to set all things right. Victor Frankl, in his classic work, Man's Search for Meaning, he builds it around something that Friedrich Nietzsche wrote. And this is what, what Frankel writes. He says, There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that so effectively helps one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. He goes on and says, There is much wisdom in the words of Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for 
can bear almost anyhow. Nietzsche wrote that he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. And the point that Frankl is making is that if you know the purpose of your life, if you know why you're here, then you can bear up and endure even the most difficult circumstances, even in places like Babylon. And so as we reflect on all of the message of Daniel, this whole journey that we've been on with him, I think you can sum it up in one phrase. And that is that when you know the end of your story, you can bear almost any middle. When you know the end of the story, you can bear almost any middle. This is what sustained Daniel for all those decades in Babylon, away from home, with all the dreams that he lost. We, we talked about this, right? That at one point, Daniel, he was this young teenager, probably with all these dreams and hopes of having a family, and living, all of that disappeared. But he knew the end of his story. When you know the end of your story, you can endure almost any middle. Daniel knew how his story ended. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know how your story ends too. So take hope. The end is going to be glorious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know that you have given us these passages of Scripture like Daniel, like Revelation, not ultimately to frighten us or confuse us, but to give us hope and encouragement. So I pray that this morning you would convict us where we need to be convicted, but ultimately that you would lead us to a place of hope and confidence in your victory in the end. That we wouldn't be afraid but that we would be fearless in your victory. That that strength would allow us to love sacrificially those people around us who are longing for hope in a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name.